Welcome, or as I hope, welcome back to the Expanding Eyes podcast. And welcome everyone to our newest work, because today we begin a discussion of Homer's epic, The Iliad, which always used to be the oldest and the beginning the fountainhead of the Western cultural tradition of literature. Strictly speaking, that's no longer true. We now have recovered works of considerably greater age than the Iliad, and some of them of true greatness, in particular the Gilgamesh epic, which is far older than the Iliad, and has some striking comparisons with the Iliad that I wish we had time to go into. But at any rate, traditionally speaking, it all began with Homer and with the Iliad. We can look at the other side of the question, and that is, given this work, which is something like 2,700 years old, what about it might still be relevant to a contemporary audience because it is indeed one of those works of what back in the 90s were reacted against and billed as the literature of all those dead white males. It is a work about war. It is a work which seems, though with considerable ambiguity, to glorify war or at least accept the idea that war is potentially glorious. And it has other things about it that simply do not match our values these days, not to mention the way that women are portrayed. If you think it was bad in the Odyssey and Virgil's Aeneid, it's much worse. You do not want to be a woman in the world of the Iliad. So there are many things about it that we do not agree with or accept. What might, to me at least, make it still relevant, still still worth pursuing in some depth? I would cite two things, though I think that this picture will be filled out in much greater complexity as we go through the text of the Iliad, which we will start to do next week. Today, I intend to hopefully not bore you by providing some background about several things. The historical background, the plot background, certain things that really are pretty much necessary to know to have a view of the Iliad in any complexity greater than what many people got in high school, at least in the United States, where it was simply studied quickly for the plot. But to go more in depth, we're going to have to look at more background issues, and I promise to keep it from straying into simply being a history lesson in its own right. I will keep it anchored to things necessary to deepen our view of the Iliad. But to go back to the question of relevance, I would cite two things. First of all, 
what to me is a virtually Shakespearean level of complexity of character. Just because this epic is 2,700 years old, we should never assume that it is unsophisticated. It is never crude in any way. In fact, the degree of its artistic and psychological sophistication is so great that that becomes one, perhaps, of many mysteries about both the Homeric epics, but certainly of the Iliad. The characters in the Iliad are remarkably complex, and one of the aspects of that is the characterization is not, despite this being a poem about war and conflict, it is not black and white at all. Less so really than the Odyssey, where there are indeed white hats and black hats. Odysseus may be a complex character, but the suitors and the cyclops are quite simply losers and villains, and that's all there is to say about them. I always remember a comment of a critic on the Iliad, however, who said that there are no true villains in the Iliad. And it strikes me personally that that is true. There are some extremely flawed human beings, and in fact, that includes a great number of the characters in the, in the Iliad, but no outright villainous characters. And the tragedy of the Iliad, and it is a tragic narrative, is driven by the human frailties and limitations in a way that is spellbinding, even though it's true that that characterization is embedded in what I admit are long stretches of pure battle scenes over which we will march rather quickly and I will summarize. Uh, and in fact, one of the uses I might be to you in this podcast is if you want to know the Iliad but are not up for the endless fight scenes, which can get extremely graphic, even by modern standards. And the spear went in here and came out his eyeball, that sort of thing. If you would like to skip that, I can at least provide a little map of where the more thematically and psychologically deeper areas of the poem are and where they're located and what you can perhaps skip. Maybe don't tell anybody that you did it, but there's a lot of fight scenes that get kind of tedious. And so we will cover them, though I do want to focus on some of them to show you what battle really was like in the Trojan War. The other thing that I think, and I think so more than ever in the last few years, is the central theme of the Iliad. The central theme of the Iliad is anger, and particularly the anger of revenge. The very first word in the original Greek text is the Greek word for anger or rage as the 
translator that I have used in class over the years. I have used the translation by Robert Fagels simply as a personal favorite. Different translators tend to have different strengths and limitations, and I, I've always felt that Fagels, of all the people to, who have translated the Iliad, and the, the number is almost startling, Every year, it seems like that I see a new one come out. But Fagels, to me, captures some of the raw power of the Iliad, a raw power equaled, in my knowledge of literature, only by some of the Anglo-Saxon poetry, Beowulf and whatnot. Fagels captures that. And he mimics the Homeric text by making the first word of his text, rage goddess, sing the rage of Achilles. And the rage, eventually, is the rage of revenge. It begins with revenge against his leader, Agamemnon, whom he feels has humiliated him publicly. It ends with revenge against the Trojan leader, Hector, for killing the most beloved person in Achilles' life, his friend Patroclus. Anger, revenge, and the endless chain of revenges and counter-revenges and counter-counter-revenges. We live in a period now of anger, and we live in a period of revenge as well. And... Speaking of this poem, within the last half dozen years or so, has actually given me a new perspective on it, even though I've been teaching the Iliad since 1991. I'm afraid some of my listeners might not even have been born then, though whatever. Uh, but the advantages of this long acquaintance Great works of literature grow on you over the years. You're never done learning what they're about. Not that I will be able to answer all of the questions because some of it may be due to my personal lack of knowledge. I am not a classicist or a Homeric uh, specialist uh, by any means. I have done a fair amount of homework, so to speak. I have read a good chunk of the scholarship, the voluminous scholarship, as you can imagine, on Homer. I did it before I even began teaching the course years ago, and I have read more books since then. But there are perhaps still some things that are not at my fingertips as they might be for an actual specialist. On the other hand, you will find if you look at those specialists, there are places where they also have to repeat what will be my commonest refrain, we don't know. There are more mysteries surrounding the Iliad than just about any work of literature that I can think of, really. And there are no sure-footed answers to almost any of them. Mostly what I will do without bogging down in it and getting it to become a sort of a place of scholarship. Eventually, we do want to get to the actual exciting story, 
But some of these questions have their own fascination. I dealt with a little bit of this in introducing the Odyssey, but I tried to compress it at that point because, after all, the first thing to talk about is the Trojan War. The poem takes place during the so-called Trojan War, and in the Odyssey, that war was 10 years in the past. It is one of the strange paradoxes of Homer that we never see the fall of Troy in Homer. If you are a regular listener to this podcast, you have seen, or rather heard, I should say, of the fall of Troy because Virgil, in the later Latin epic, the Aeneid, dramatizes it for an entire book of his epic, Book Two of the Aeneid. But in Homer, the action of the Iliad takes place in the 10th year of a 10-year war, but ends before the end of the war, before the fall of Troy. Whereas in the Odyssey, the war is 10 years in the past, and it is about the homecomings, or at least those who are still alive to have homecomings, and in particular, of course, Odysseus. So the phrase, we don't know, applies to any number of things beginning with the very name of Homer, the name of the poet. The name Homer and a brief, you might say, one-sentence legend that is attached to it is all we have about the authorship of this poem. And what we have may simply be wrong, may simply be legendary. The legend is this, the one-sentence legend, that there was, that the Iliad and the Odyssey were composed by Homer, who was an Ionian Greek, that is, he came from one of the islands rather than mainland Greece, that he was blind, uh, and uh, we have no idea whether that's true or not. Anything in scholarship generates an opposite position, and the opposite position is that that is indeed simply a legend that the blind bard has simply been inspired by the fact that in the Odyssey, there is a blind bard, Demodocus. But one of the themes of the Odyssey, as I always teach it, is be careful of what stories you do not believe as well as what stories you believe. It may perfectly well be possible the other way around, that there is a blind bard in the Odyssey because there was a blind bard composing it, who has his little moment of autobiography. It is possible, whether it's plausible or not, or not depends on what scholar you consult. It is also, by the way, possible, though we don't have time to pursue this, that the Iliad and the Odyssey are by different poets, a point of view with which I actually personally tend to agree, tend to think is more likely than not. And if there is a second poet. The Odyssey is often dated as much as a century more recently than the Iliad. Whether that's true or not, the Odyssey is very revisionist in relationship to the Iliad, 
again suggesting the possibility of a different poet, a different point of view, but not necessarily. Shakespeare has radically different points of view or attitudes in various of his works. It is quite possible that there was one poet named Homer who was a blind bard from the island of Chios, composing in the Ionian dialect. And uh, by the way, that leads me to the question of the languages of the poem. The Trojans are a Greek-related people. The battle is between the Greeks, who in the poem call themselves not Greeks but Achaeans, and the Trojans, who were not mainland Greeks either, but are a Greek-related people, speaking a dialect that the scholars tell us would have been related to and comprehensible to the Achaean dialect. So we don't know anything except the enticing legend about Homer. I will speak in the future of Homer as if there was a Homer simply for convenience, and you can keep in mind all of the scholarly qualifications about maybe, maybe not. In addition, there is a we don't know about the Trojan War. This was a 10-year war. Did it ever take place? Did it take place, but in a different way, altered by memory from the way it's portrayed here? Or is it simply fictitious, made up? And again, we don't know. We will probably never know, barring some utterly unexpected new discovery archaeologically or linguistically. But there was this legend of a 10-year war fought, and the Iliad recounts an ev events in the 10th year of that war. We have no idea whether that war took place, whether there were ever characters even remotely resembling Achilles and Agamemnon and Hector. But we do know that there was a Troy. And that is an amazing story. I briefly alluded to some of this background, introducing the Odyssey, but it is highly relevant here. And it's also fascinating, so I don't think the repetition I hope it does not bore anyone. Troy, as a city, did exist, and that was proved by a great stunt, a great coup, in 1871 by Heinrich Schliemann, who rediscovered the site of Troy and excavated Troy. This is a fascinating story. It is really, as I understand it, the beginning of modern archaeology, although Schliemann's methods were anything but scientific in the way that archaeology is now. Nevertheless, he started something, and the irony is that Schliemann was not at all an expert. There were no archaeologists in 1871. That discipline did not yet exist. What there were were classicists, 
people who were experts on the classical text. And they had decided that Troy, which had utterly disappeared, there wasn't anything, there were no ruins above ground left at all and had not been for centuries, they had decided that it was Troy was a fiction. Schliemann, not an expert, he was a German businessman who got rich. There were, when I, in the early years of my teaching the Iliad, there were several biographies of Schliemann that appeared almost simultaneously, and the consensus was that he was a rich German businessman who got rich through some rather shady business practices, but was rich enough to become a kind of an Elon Musk funding his own expedition. The experts jeered at him for his naivete. Oh, he actually believes that Troy existed. He probably believes in Santa Claus too. Somebody should tell him, hey Heinrich, it's all made up. He did not believe this. He used the landmarks in the descriptions in the poem itself to travel to where he thought the probability might be that here lies the site of Troy and began digging and very quickly discovered remains. He kept digging and began to discover that there were remains beneath remains. There were levels. Troy was not just built. It was built and rebuilt in a kind of multiple urban renewal over centuries in layers, one layer on top of the other. And at about the level where, according to sedimentation and logic, the older the stratum, the older, the deeper the stratum, the older the remains, at right about the level that would have corresponded to the actual Trojan War, which the scholars roughly agree if it took place at all, would have taken place around 1250 BC, 1150 at the more recent. At about that level, Troy had been destroyed by fire. As usual, scholars never agree. They actually keep themselves in business publishing articles by disagreeing, so they have something of an incentive to disagree with the person who had published previously. So the skeptical point of view is, oh, that's just an accident. It was probably destroyed by earthquake, and that's you know perfectly possible, of course, but still haunting. And then he began bringing up all of these artifacts and excavating the ruins you can go on the internet, I'm sure, and find vivid pictures of all of this. And it is now excavated, and before the pandemic, at any rate, open to the public. It is in what we now call Turkey, what in ancient times was called Asia Minor, at a site called Heserlik. And as I say, except for pandemic restrictions, 
can be visited as a tourist site, and you can see the uh, remains of it. You can also go to Agamemnon's home city of Mycenae on the Greek mainland. Troy was in Asia Minor or Turkey. The Greeks or Achaeans, however, came from the Greek mainland, and the leader of the Achaean expedition against Troy was Agamemnon, who ruled the great city of Mycenae. Schliemann went on from Troy to excavate Mycenae. Also excavated have been other cities like Pylos, the supposed city of Nestor that we visited in the Odyssey. So there is a historical level here. And how much does that make the actual storyline more probable, we don't know. And we'll never know, but it's very enticing. What we have, and all that we have, is the poem itself. And if you can actually read the Homeric text, you are able, at least the specialists who know Homeric Greek very in great depth. And Homeric Greek, by the way, is a different Greek than the Attic Greek, if you want to study ancient Greek, which is very different from modern Greek. Usually, most of the textbooks to study ancient Greek are Attic Greek, the Greek of the later period of Socrates and Plato and Aeschylus and so forth and so on. Homer is before them, quite a bit before them, and it is yet a different form of Greek. But if you are able to read it in the original, scholars who can are aware of inconsistencies in the text. Later, when we finish talking about the story of the Iliad, I hope to have as a bookend to this preliminary lecture right now, a concluding lecture about oral composition. The Iliad was originally, in some form or other, maybe not the form in which we have it, but in some form or other, the Iliad was an oral poem in a society which did not use writing. There was a limited form of writing used only for business purposes of inventory, but anything like literature. And there were many other poems other than the two by Homer that have been lost. There was a whole epic cycle, as it was called, that had a kind of Marvel Universe complete picture far greater than the Iliad and the Odyssey about other aspects of the war, of the aftermath of the war, of the same heroes, and so forth and so on. But in what we've got, which is the Iliad and the Odyssey, and that's it, those poems go back to an oral form. And in oral tradition, the poem is composed orally, it is passed on orally, 
the audience receives it orally as a performance rather than a text. And as I say, that is a fascinating mystery. How is this remotely possible? I happen to be a fan of traditional folk music, and that also begins as an oral tradition. But there, long as some of the traditional ballads get, and some of the Robin Hood ballads are a hundred stanzas long, nevertheless, the Iliad is on a staggeringly greater scale than that. The Iliad is something like 15,000 lines long. How is that remotely possible in an oral tradition? And I'll talk about that at the other end of our experience. But for now, I will stop with saying this, that what happens in oral tradition is like the game of telephone, where one person whispers, a simple message to another person who whispers it to another person. And as we all know, down the line, it's almost inevitable that that message has been mutated and distorted and sometimes outright mistaken and changed. And that has clearly happened in the text of the Iliad visible to the scholars who, who can look at the linguistic aspects of it, and also some of the details about life in that time. Because if there was a Trojan War, it took place approximately 1250 to 1150 BCE. If there was a Homer, and there was somebody who composed this poem, Homer lived somewhere more like 750 to 700 BCE. There is a huge gap, comparable perhaps, to the four centuries plus gap between us and Shakespeare. And in that period of time, much changed and much was lost. A very important thing to understand the Iliad is the elegiac sense that emerges ever so often. Homer, or whoever, but the poet, living around 700 perhaps BCE, lived in what, if you look at history books or art history books, is actually billed as the Dark Age, comparable to the later Dark Ages in the medieval period. If you look at art history books, it's known as the geometric period because the art had reverted to a kind of minimal geometry. But it is a period of decline, actually, of cultural decline from the actual period of the Trojan War. And Homer knows this. There is an elegiac, wistful looking back. Another aspect of the Iliad that always reminds me of Anglo-Saxon Old English poetry. Looking back, I've spoken of the ruins of places like Mycenae that have now been excavated. The Anglo-Saxons, looking back through centuries at things like the Old Roman ruins and referring to them as the Ald Enta Yewerk, the ancient work of the giants. And we're just talking, well, it wasn't giants, it was Romans. But to them, these 
ruins were hauntingly beyond anything that they understood, much less were able to mimic in their own time. That's the attitude that emerges every so often in the Iliad, that there was a greater period of time, and I am singing about it. This was a time when, yes, we have our heroes, but the heroes that I will tell you about are far greater than the heroes can be now, wistfully looking back to a vanished past. Let me quickly, in just a couple of minutes, begin to set up the plot, and then next time we will look at the actual storyline of book one. And we need to understand, first of all, the minimum uh, plot background, especially because Homer established the conventions for epics down through the epic tradition ever since, at least as late as Milton's Paradise Lost. And one of those conventions was beginning in medius race, a Latin phrase from the poet Horace, contemporary with Virgil, who said, Homer established the convention that epics don't begin at the beginning. They precipitate the reader in medius race, into the middle of things. Therefore, when we open the Iliad and the action begins, we are in the middle of an action, and we have to look back at the backstory at the same time that the plot moves forward. And there is a lot of backstory, and I will recount more of it next time, but it begins, as many people know, because yes, if you are in the United States, many of us read at least part of the Iliad in high school and got at least the plot outline, and that's great, though it tends to be a not very deep look at the poem. But it begins, as people who know at all, with, okay, what are we fighting over? We are fighting over a woman, Helen of Troy, who 10 years ago either was taken from or voluntarily left, more about that question next time, left her husband, Menelaus, and fled to Troy with a man, a Trojan, named Paris. So she's become known as Helen of Troy, and that is a rather ironic misnomer because, well, yeah, for 10 years she's been Helen of Troy, but the problem is that she should be Helen of Greece, and specifically she should be Helen the wife of Menelaus, not Helen the lover of Paris. So willingly or unwillingly, or an ambiguous combination of both, away she went, Menelaus goes to his brother, Agamemnon, the most powerful ruler in, in mainland Greece, who cobbles together a coalition army. The first year I taught the Iliad was 1991, the year of the first Persian Gulf War, in which George Bush commanded exactly the same type of coalition army. 
not just the U.S. Army, but there were Arab contingents, there were European contingents. He was commander-in-chief, but it was an army made up of armies, and that is what Agamemnon commands. The famous phrase, which is not from Homer at all, but from Marlowe's play Dr. Faustus in Shakespeare's time, is that Helen was the face that launched a thousand ships. We will talk about the catalog of ships in book two of the Iliad next time. But the flight of Helen and the effort to get her back, two entire armies for 10 years. But how did that get started? Paris was set onto this. This wasn't just a romantic or lustful moment on the part of two people. The gods played their puppeteering role in this, and that will lead us to begin next time with what's called the judgment of Paris, and then plunge into the disaster that all of that has created 10 years down the line in the 10th year of the war. We'll go on from there.